Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Evan McMullen. She's the co-founder at Cerdo, and she's also a guest lecturer on the side as well. Cerdo, the company she's working on right now, it's formerly called Uport, um, and they are bridging the intersection between data and identity. And I'm super excited to talk to Evan about all of this because obviously we're you know very focused on digital identity, decentralized identity at Unstoppable Domains. And I have learned so much from Evan and can't wait to have her on to share all her knowledge with all of you as well. So welcome, Evan. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Diana. Great to be here. Awesome. So before we dive into uh, Cerdo and all the cool stuff you're working on right now, I would love to hear a little bit more about your background. How did you get exposed to crypto in the first place? And what was it that caught your attention and pulled you down the rabbit hole? I love this question. How did I fall down the rabbit hole? So when I um, was in undergrad in college, I had an absolutely incredible uh, young woman as my professor, um, Elizabeth Stark, who is now uh, leading efforts in, in Lightning Labs. But when I was a student, uh, she got me really excited about um, free and open source software, the Foss and Floss movement, and Creative Commons, the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard, as well as the Yale Information Society Project. So the sort of dynamics around all of those parties were really focused on freedom of information and what the self-sovereign data future might look like. Um, and so for me, I was very frustrated at first because there didn't seem to be any technical solutions that could allow for an alternative to the surveillance capitalism that was swiftly snowballing around me at the time as Facebook and Twitter really took off as part of our shared experience in digital culture. And so when I first encountered the Bitcoin paper a few years later, actually I believe it was through that same set of conversations and same set of folks, it started to pique my interest. But again, I was sort of frustrated because uh, it really only decentralized the autonomy of, of value in a really straightforward way. And so yet, you know, didn't present the the rich multi-chain ecosystem that that we can look forward to nurturing today. Um, but what really sold me on the the promise of decentralization was the the premise that we as individuals might actively participate in the exchange and use of the data we generate as work product that's realized as values, as value by um, the enterprises around us. Um, and so having that sovereign role, I saw as a really exciting opportunity, um, not only to, to better direct how our data gets used, but also to uplift citizens, individuals with greater you know, consent and participation, but also a greater share of value. Gotcha, gotcha. So now that you, you know, are working on this in a decentralized manner, tell me how you think about identity and data today in the context of, you know, having data and identity be on chain versus off chain. What's your view on that? Is it everything should be on chain? Or should it, is it, you know, half and half? Or uh, just explain how you think about that. That is a great question. So I am an off-chain supremacist. 
No, just kidding. Um, but I, I think that we should look to on-chain transactions as we do uh, you know, limited resources. They're a public utility that requires a significant amount of effort and energy and documenting anything immutably in a public context um, makes a very opinionated decision about that piece of data in perpetuity. And so I see off-chain data as the great flexible alternative um, to public immutable on-chain transactions that can complement the blockchain-based data ecosystem that we have have today with more mutable flexibility that evolves because that's what we do as human beings. We evolve and so does our identity and the privileges that we gain as a result of that identity. I see on-chain transactions as an exciting way for us to achieve public consensus in a decentralized way. However, uh, on-chain data is not useful for everything. Um, personally identifiable data, data that's specific to us individually, does not belong in a public immutable form immediately accessible to all. Uh, if we think about, you know, as mentioning earlier, the surveillance capitalism landscape in which we live right now, where our data is um, exchanged without our knowledge or consent, uh, that data gets exposed to a lot of parties. But putting personal data on chain exposes our data to even more parties, literally the entire universe of uh, potential individuals to, to access um, data in that, in that public and on-chain form. I see off-chain data as optimal for personal data, data that evolves, data that might be private, that isn't useful to share with everyone, that we don't need to have public consensus about, or that might have additional relevance if it is not public. Um, so everything from individual academic achievements to um, STI status to ethnic group and, and genetic markers are all examples of data that's imminently relevant and valuable to us as individuals, but would not be appropriate to share in a public immutable setting like a blockchain. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think we were talking last time and I had to go get a COVID test recently to go into Canada and it they made me fill out this super long form that was like your ethnicity, your marital status, all of these things. And I was like, how is any of this related to me getting a COVID test? Like all you need to know should be like my name, maybe my date of birth to verify who I am. That's like in my mind, like about all you need to know to like administer a COVID test and tell me whether or not I have COVID, right? Uh, so like, I guess like in your ideal model, like practically speaking, how would it, how would we port around this data? You know, whether it's like our health information or our um, passport and ID, like our PII, like how would we port around all of that? And then how would we use it in the context of, you know, having to do things like get a COVID test or, or whatever you might have to do? So, Diana, what's pretty wild right now is if I were to take some data about you and send it to you and ask you to hold it in a place that only you own and control, you'd have very limited options. Um, and so the first order of business before we start, you know, throwing around any of these data types is to define where where are we going to hold our personal data? Where might we be able to stash it so that it's ready for us to retrieve whenever we need it? We can selectively share it or disclose it with other parties that need it, but only disclose it under terms that we agree to and for a duration that's appropriate for our needs. So we're not, you know, when we hand over our data, we don't necessarily need to do that in perpetuity with no limit on its use. 
the lived experience that I envision, the, the physical form of that, I think is going to start off with an experience very similar to the Web3 wallets that we enjoy today for holding our tokens and our collectibles. Um, so if you can imagine in your MetaMask or your Liquality wallet, uh, one day we might have um, tokens, collectibles, and credentials. And we might be able to manage in a wallet context um, a review of our vital documents. So imagine a digital version of your driver's license that you could present to uh, an establishment or to a law enforcement officer to share your government identity. You could also include a university transcript or diploma to share some of your academic identity in that, in that way. Um, and additionally, you could also have medical data. Um, and actually, if we look at the example being examples being set by Apple um, and the way that they're creating uh, medical records that can be owned and controlled by users, Apple's actually adopting uh, some, some um, well-accepted technical standards for secure off-chain signed data um, already in delivering those, those health records to users. Uh, so in the same way that we manage the digital assets under our control through a wallet interface, I think we could manage the data and qualifications and achievements that we have as individuals through a similar, a similar interface in the same way that we manage the contents of our wallet with our COVID-19 credentials physically in there, although mine are, my card's kind of big, so it doesn't quite fit. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And then I'm imagining, too, that the, the wallet would have certain features that let you show, you know, a certain category of information. Like, for instance, if I all I'm trying to do is like go out to the bar and get a drink and they just need to know that I'm 21, I, I can just choose to reveal my date of birth and they don't have to also, you know, know where I live and uh, know all this other information about me. Right. Totally. A classic use case for off-chain private data is the bar bouncer who right now gets to know your eye color and your home zip code, but really all you need to tell them is whether or not you are over the age prescribed for a safe entry to their space. And so uh, when we think about how these credentials that we, we might build up and, and might be able to control ourselves could be presented in the future, I think it's really exciting to think about how we might not even need to actively participate in clicking a button. Imagine being able to physically walk into a space where a door opens based on the credentials or qualifications that you have. Or being able to go to a show and physically enter, like a concert, and physically enter a special area, you know, toward the front because you have credentials that prove that you've listened to a thousand hours of Blau and been to 10 of his shows before. And so therefore you're a, a super fan. And so being able to, to embed role-based access, which is basically what credentials allow us, um, into the physical environment around us, into the digital environments we enjoy in the metaverse and even to basic things like, you know, who has access to what permissions on software at work um, can all be made so much easier if we start organizing data around the subject instead of around the centralized database. Yeah. Okay. That's even more fascinating than what I was thinking. So it's like, we don't even need a bouncer to verify our date of birth. Like no one needs even needs to know our date of birth, right? Like maybe, maybe you don't want them to know if you're, you know, 22 or 42 and all you want to is get into the bar. It just is like a yes or no, like a green light or a red light that either gets you in if you're 20 over 21 or denies you if you're under 21. Like that's literally all that has to happen. And it can just be 
something you scan your phone on, or it could be like a security gate or, you know, anything else, right? Like we don't even need a bouncer in that case. And I think what you're noting um, really highlights the value of all Web3 crypto primitives, which is that when used thoughtfully, they can lower the cost of coordination between parties that don't know and don't necessarily trust each other. Whether that's being able to um, provide special privileges based on your qualifications or whether that's being you know, ready to transact with uh, another party in a certain way, even without being intimately aware of how they operate, um, credentials can help us to suss out whether or not a counterparty fits the criteria of what we're trying to achieve. You know, when we think about the complex types of problems that we try to solve in Web3, obviously we think about, you know, problems like um, allocating treasuries. So we're using our Ethereum addresses as identifiers for each other. We can tell how much um, how much value is in one another's wallets. We can see the public transactions that we're performing. But those identifiers really only tell us about how much wealth we have and what our past transaction history is. And so if we want to solve more complex coordination problems than treasury allocation, we need identifiers that tell, you know, to, that, that allow us to tell one another more about ourselves than just how many assets we have or what kind of wealth we have. Um, so those complex coordination problems require more complex kinds of reputation. And that's where off-chain data really comes in handy. Got it. Okay, so that's off-chain data. There's also on-chain data. You said previously, you know, there's certain situations that make more sense to keep your data off-chain and then other situations that make more sense to keep your data on-chain. So we've talked about the off-chain part and now let's talk about the on-chain part. What kind of data makes sense to keep on-chain? I think about on-chain data as being optimal when we need to write once, never erase. We need everyone to agree and we need everyone to um, sort of actively be able to reference that information in perpetuity. Um, and so obviously financial transactions where we want to um, you know, eliminate a double spend problem uh, are very, very helpful. Transactions between parties that otherwise don't have a trusted line of communication. Um, so enterprise interactions can use the public chain to maintain the um, state of disparately held databases that are managed by separate parties that don't otherwise interact. Um, and so uh, so it's basically like a giant single state channel between between two parties. And obviously, you know, financial transaction data on the chain um, can also correlate with um, with various community participation activities. So for example, if you are a canonical signer for a DAO multi-sig wallet, the transactions that you sign off on um, have more value and more weight than just financial because you're acting on behalf of that organization. So there is some social merit to making those transactions public. Um, so I think the, the nice complement of these sort of public transactions is, um, is being able to build you know, flowing, mutable, evolving context around those transactions um, so that you can always uh, sort of interrogate them, find further, um, further, I don't know, contextual data and reputation in them um, so that we aren't beholden to single address, sends an asset to another address, and then all of the rest of the trustless data, or rather there's no, there's no more trustless data available, or we're not capturing data about that transaction event in any other form. 
Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So tell me about Serto and what you're building there and how it relates to everything that we uh, started talking about already. So maybe, maybe, why don't you start from the beginning? Like, how did you initially get the idea for Serto? What problem were you trying to solve? And then take us through what the journey has been like so far. So Serto builds upon the shoulders of giants. Um, teams like Uport preceded our work in exploring what it means to empower an end user or an enterprise with the ability to create a decentralized identity, um, a set of keys for which um, they can sign off-chain transactions and attest to pieces of data. Um, so Uport's work occurred before the W3C and other standards um, organizations agreed upon uh, what we enjoy now as the technical standards for decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. So Serto's effort uh, picks up around then. We make it really easy for organizations to get started with a decentralized identifier um, and to issue, request, disclose, and revoke, and just generally manage credentials that that organization writes about itself and about others, um, as well as how to share those and how to, how to sort of populate them to, to give them value in their community exchanges. Um, so Serto began our work with a rigorous um, interview and research process where we really wanted to understand how is it that enterprises are beginning their journey into self-sovereign identity and where are the gaps between reading about the technical standards and actually using them. And so we found um, a very limited landscape of tools available for especially business leaders and technical leaders to um, be able to do things like issue a credential signed by their organization, proving that a given individual is an employee or proving that um, their business is part of a consortium with other organizations. Um, and so we offer a suite of tools, starting with an AWS Marketplace app um, that makes it really easy to create that identifier and get started with credentials. We also have a cross-chain search engine called Serto Search that makes it really easy to find out more information about a credential you might find in the wild or businesses that are set up and ready to interact in decentralized ways and um, the decentralized identifiers that the, those businesses use to represent themselves. And then lastly, we have Serto Schemas, which like schema.org is um, an in-browser sandbox to create, review, and share different kinds of verifiable credential schemas, which are basically the data taxonomy involved in um, defining a given credential. So we've got credentials for everything from COVID-19 vaccination proofs to uh, VIP access at concerts. Um, so any kind of privilege or achievement that is personal or specific to a given individual, we can create a schema for using those tools. Gotcha. Okay, so there was a lot there and a lot of it was very technical. So let's break it down and um, try to talk about it more practically so people can imagine these real world scenarios when they might use it. And just to back all the way up, when you say decentralized identifier, what do you mean? Ah, yes, that is a super key term. Let's let's define it. So a decentralized identifier or DID is basically just a public key, a string of letters and numbers, and a set of private keys that um, the owner you know, holds and uses to sign off-chain messages. So statements 
that that individual makes. So for example, I might write a credential that says, um, I spoke with Diana uh, about decentralized identity, signed Evan. And I can give you that credential and you can show that credential to anyone else. Um, and they can you know, look at it. If they trust me, they'll trust what's contained therein. So the magic of decentralized identifiers is that um, they are built upon or sort of extend the capabilities first illustrated by PGP, which is um, uh, basically a, a, a protocol capability to identify counterparties and have um, a, a set of keys that allow you to sign off-chain transactions or private transactions. However, the challenge with PGP is that you couldn't rotate your keys. And so if you lost your keys or they became compromised, you're kind of out of luck. Um, and so decentralized identifiers came along and offered a new approach to public key cryptography that allowed the, um, the identifier to rotate those keys in the event of compromise or handing the identifier over to a new party, whatever that might be. Um, so another really wonderful uh, trait of decentralized identifiers is that the way they are composed um, includes uh, the ability to turn any blockchain address, most blockchain addresses, so for example, an Ethereum address or a Bitcoin address, into uh, a decentralized identifier. So the namespace of that identifier can be populated by an Ethereum address. So imagine I use my regular Ethereum address to send transactions to and from Diana. I can create a decentralized identifier using my Ethereum address, kind of like uh, an off-chain backpack for my Ethereum address that can hold off-chain pieces of data written about my Ethereum address. But I can also use that identifier to sign messages, sign off-chain messages from that same identi identity. So decentralized identifiers allow us to enjoy the benefits of off-chain data for our on-chain identifiers. I know it's a little, it's a little complicated, um, but uh, essentially uniting your on-chain transactions with your off-chain reputation gives a fuller picture of who a given individual is rather than basing their entire identity on their wallet transaction history and contents, which is all we can do if we only look at the Ethereum address as our primary identifier. Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely a gap right now in uh, the ability to port our data from platform to platform and also across, you know, on-chain and off-chain. It's we it's almost like we live these double lives now where we've got our digital selves and then we've got our like IRL selves. There's, you know, other than Serto that I, there's no way that I've heard of to sort of like port these two worlds together and collect all of your data in one place. Uh, so, okay, cool. So I've got my de decentralized identifier and then say I want to put, you know, my driver's license information, my passport information, my COVID vaccination card, uh, all of these things onto into one place. How would I go about doing that with Serto? So there are a few different ways that you could achieve that goal. The first question is going to be, who needs to sign those documents for those documents in digital form to be valuable to you? So you're going to want your driver's license to be signed by the DMV, right? And so the ideal form of that driver's license would be a verifiable credential issued to you by the DMV, signed by the DMV, that you can carry around and present. Alternatively, there might be a third party, like digital driver ID co. 
and they might be um, a, a permitted delegate of the state and they can scan your driver's license and sign a credential saying that their company has validated it and therefore it meets the appropriate success criteria of a digital ID. That's basically the process that's, that is going to be most helpful in collecting those credentials is making sure they are issued to you by a party that is qualified or trustworthy to be issuing them. So for example, a COVID-19 credential issued to you by Gucci is not very helpful because Gucci is not an authority on COVID-19 vaccinations. So this also gets into the importance of having a really secure practice around who's allowed to issue certain credentials um, and how that how that process occurs. Uh, and so that's part of why at CERTO, we're really focused on bringing enterprises on board first, allowing them to define what kinds of credentials they issue, and then practicing what it means to to give out those credentials and then test their use out in the world. Um, because one of the really exciting things about verifiable credentials is that I can give a credential to you. You can present that credential to another party. They can trust it without ever having to speak to me. This is useful in an academic context where you want to show your academic achievements, but um, you don't necessarily want to make your new employer call the university to check whether you went there. Um, or even if we think about LinkedIn, having the ability to interrogate any attestation on LinkedIn to make sure that it's as true as it, you know, as it appears at face value um, would be really helpful. Or even if we think about back to the 2017 ICO boom, where just about uh, every token project had Vitalik as an advisor on the, on the bottom and, you know, had some familiar logos. Um, having uh, being able to interrogate those relationships further and see what kind of relationship is being attested um, could be really helpful context. Got it. Got it. So uh, I, I guess, like, where are you guys in that process right now with, you know, getting enterprises on board? And I imagine a lot of it is, you know, not just enterprises, but like government authorities, because that's where a lot of verifications uh, come from that we use every day. So is I, I'm just curious, because I know, you know, the government is typically the last uh, group of people to jump on board with, you know, an, an emerging technology. So how has that process been for you guys? I'm just wondering. Very experimental. Um, we have learned a lot from a variety of both government and private enterprise organizations along the way. Um, so our team has been actively involved in both the development of legislation as well as the experimentation or sandboxing of decentralized identity in the United States and Western Europe, really around the world. Um, and so our current process has really been um, education first, helping our partners and collaborators both in the public and private sector truly understand the consequences of a more self-sovereign data practice. And then in terms of uh, in terms of kind of adoption surfaces, we've seen a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around creating end user wallets that are able to hold, manage, and sign verifiable credentials. Initially, the demand was very much on the enterprise side, um, being able to manage role-based access and to more efficiently conduct business-to-business -business communications. But I think once those enterprises immediate, or started to understand the value of B2B interactions, they turned inward and realized that a lot of these capabilities would be valuable for their 
workforces as well. So from COVID-19 credentials to employee credentials, we're seeing a greater focus, certainly this quarter, on interest in um, individual credentials in the workplace and definitely related to a safe return to work uh, set of goals for a lot of these businesses. Yeah, for sure. So what do you have planned ahead? What's your roadmap for Serta? The the annoying question that everybody likes to ask. What's your what's your roadmap? It's a wonderful question. Um, it's a very exciting question because um, in the coming probably about month, the Serto team um, will be launching our enterprise suite of products in um, full production. So up until this point, we have been in alpha and beta testing, um, preparing no and low code solutions to get folks started with uh, decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials. So we are extremely excited to unveil this product suite and to really focus on um, usability and simplicity of onboarding. Um, because uh, you know, as we know, it doesn't really matter how much your tools scale if the initial experience of them is arduous for especially enterprise users. We are also looking forward to dogfooding a bit of our own tech. Um, we're working with the consensus team internally to provide employment credentials to our friends and colleagues um, and to start experimenting with those internally. I think we've got a, a lot of fun progress both on partnerships in the public side as well as on the internal and more Ethereum ecosystem um, uh, development side. That's super cool. And I, I just have to follow up and ask, so like, what will that process look like for the uh, employees at Consensus once you roll out the product to them? Like how, yeah, like just walk me through how, what that'll look like. So um, I think some of that is going to be determined by how our colleagues on the people and talent team uh, choose to move forward with, um, with using these credentials. But the initial distribution, we want to keep as simple as possible with um, no lift for our colleagues. And so I think it's probably going to take the form of just sending a credential to their email as a local file just as a, a very first step, something that requires very little effort on their part, um, but can be presented in the form of a QR code if and when needed. And so we're excited about exploring how these credentials might be presented alongside other identifiers or qualifiers to allow for um, uh, team members to do things like book travel or access exclusive merchandise or be able to access certain content, special online privileges, um, or even community meetups. I'm particularly particularly excited about how verifiable credentials can benefit the community space. Um, earlier, we were talking about the need for DAO members to cultivate their reputation and build their authority in a way that's also respectful of their data. In the developer relations community, I think off-chain data and tooling will be um, really valuable, hopefully enabled by Serto, to permit these communities to self-organize and to, to you know, deliver reputation that can be useful not only in one DAO, but can allow you to walk up to another DAO and bring your reputation with you without having to, you know, farm in the uh, in the Discord channel for social favor. That's a perfect segue into DAOs. I wanted to talk to you about that because I know that's something you think about a lot. And I did read the article you sent over that you had just written about the DAOs and plutocracy and stuff like that. So I'm just curious, like when you think about DAOs, what do you see as some of the major challenges that DAOs face today? DAOs right now, I think are and I say this with all love and respect as an enthusiastic member of, of several DAOs, but DAOs are kind of a misnomer. They're not really decentralized. They're certainly not autonomous. And they're not really organized for the most part. And so 
in my experience, DAOs largely amount to token-gated Discord channels, some of which have a shared bank account. When, when we use identifiers like Ethereum addresses as the primary method of engaging one another in a DAO, that means that the only information we have about one another are our token holdings. And so um, when votes are allocated in accordance with token holdings and decisions in the DAO are made in accordance with, with wealth, that feels awful lot like a, you know, like a plutocracy, like, um, like the, the power is delegated in accordance with material holdings. And if you are trying to solve a really complex coordination problem like making a product or producing an event, you're probably going to want the individuals calling the shots there to be subject matter experts in the outcome you're trying to achieve, um, which does not always correlate with the people who have the most money. It's sort of user-centered design, not wealth-centered design in practice. Um, and so I see a great opportunity with DAOs to uh, to push the bounds of, um, of what we can do with token-gated communities. And I see some, you know, for example, Friends with Benefits does a really stellar job of leveraging Web2 tools like Discord to do, you know, all kinds of community organization and, uh, and management. Um, so we see some, some more, you know, developed organizations that have more robust forms of reputation, but a lot of that happens using Web2 tools and offline tools. So, you know, Google Docs, lists of people, Discord, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. So in your mind, I guess, like, what are some of the solutions to these problems that you think DAOs can implement? Maybe you have an answer. Maybe you don't have an answer. I know it's this is like such a big question. And if we all if somebody had an answer, you know, then we'd have it figured out. But we're still in such early days and we're still all sort of trying to figure it out as we go along. But in your mind, like, what are some ways uh, in which DAOs could improve the way that they're structured in order to achieve this, like, like what they're meant to be, these decentralized autonomous organizations? So I think one really easy, you know, first, first step that we could take um, are DAO membership credentials. Right now, the only way to signal your participation in a DAO is either a public-facing on-chain asset like an NFT or a social signal like your Twitter bio. Um, and so being able to delegate or, or hand out proofs of membership that are signed by perhaps the canonical signers of the DAO or some you know, representatives from the organization would allow for, at the very simplest, people to move from one DAO to another and show their membership in the first. And so these kinds of signals are really, really basic tools that we look to in all of the other contexts where we look for reputation. So whether it's someone's LinkedIn profile, their past history on other social media, their past education history, et cetera, uh, being able to signal your membership in a given tribe would be very helpful for DAOs. I also think that, um, that embracing verifiable credentials in the sophisticated way that we talked about earlier would be a wonderful addition to contextual reputation for the DAO landscape. So imagine if in one DAO you contributed design work and you provided some social media work and you helped to organize an event, you could receive credentials from that DAO attesting to your contributions and your excellence in membership and good standing. So then you might go to a different DAO 
present those credentials and say, hey, I actually have already contributed in the following ways. This other DAO thought that my work was really great. Um, that might be a bit of a proof of work, if you will, that you might uh, have a high likelihood of achieving in those um, in those areas in the new DAO that you've entered. Um, so again, you know, DAOs are really or, or DAOs purport to lower the switching costs of contributing to one environment and then contributing to another, while also allowing for um, you know contributors to have a stake in the outcome, no matter how ephemeral their contribution. And so we need to have reputation that is as just as flexible and contextual as the freedom of, of contribution that we hope, you know, from other aspects of DAOs. Yeah, 100%. I think the point you make about being able to track your, your activity within a DAO uh, over time, I think is really important because that's sort of a very key component of DAOs and why people like to join DAOs is because everybody can just contribute in whatever way they want. But at the same, you know, in the same vein, you want to bring on members into a DAO who will contribute. And so having that proof of activity from a past DAO, you can say like, oh, I can see that Evan has, you know, contributed this much work in every DAO she's been a part of. I know she's going to be an active contributing member if I ask her to join this DAO that I'm trying to form. And so I'm going to go for her versus somebody who's like maybe has membership in like 10 different DAOs, but they spend, you know, like less than an hour a week doing work for each of those. And so then you're like, well, looks like this person is like pretty inactive, just likes to like dip their toes in as many things as possible, like not what I'm looking for in this case. Totally, yeah, just finding a good, and, and really that gets at what we were talking about earlier, which is that credentials help us to determine the fitness of one party to meet this, the acceptance criteria of another party, whether that's a DAO or a, you know, a techno club, <laughs> checking for the age of their of their attendees. I think this sort of, Reputation exchange also highlights um, the kinds of implicit expectations that we have for DAOs. Of course, we want people to contribute who are, you know, who are going to be members in good standing and who are going to be helpful and useful. Um, we assume that capability when we build our teams in physical space today. But if we overlook the need for these kinds of capabilities and, you know, pretend that everything's already cool with DAOs the way that they are, then we're going to continue to run into challenges like, for example, with trust queues, where um, DAOs today rely really heavily on Discord. Um, many users will become familiar with the leaders of a DAO over Twitter, and then Discord bots pretending to be those leaders can slide into members' DMs and um, clean out their ledger wallets or compromise their data in, in different ways. We need to think holistically about reputation, um, especially in the DAO space where you know money is changing hands, reputation is changing hands, um, and we don't have a common language for how to move our reputation data from one application to another. Um, and this is true in all of Web3. The you know, reputation and application layer data that I generate in Audius doesn't talk to my Gitcoin account, doesn't talk to my MetaMask. And so we create, or we have, by centralizing the identity layer for many Web3 apps, instead of using decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, we create a fractionalized liquidity problem of our own personal data, similar to the fractionalized liquidity we experience with tokens in L2. But there's no Connext or you know hot protocol coming to save us. 
Yeah, totally. I'm so with you on that. And then another point you brought up earlier, too, is this like problem with uh, voting and governance, where in some DAOs, at least, you see that, you know, the people who put in more money into the DAO receive more uh, voting rights. And so in that sense, it almost just seems like it's still like money is power, like how like nothing has changed from our traditional system where it's the more money you have, the more power you have. Um, It doesn't seem very decentralized at all. What do you see as being a potential solution to that problem? So to start off, yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Um, however, I think there are some teams that, without fully adopting off-chain reputation, have started to make wonderful progress toward a more egalitarian or contextual token-based voting mechanism. Um, one team I'll shout out is Popsicle Finance. They have token voting. Basically, they've weighted their voting system, their governance system, based on the duration of your token holdings, as well as the quantity of token holdings. So it incentivizes the HODL. It incentivizes long-term engaged community members. Um, I know there are also some other teams that um, that provide uh, weighting based on your active participation in previous votes. And so this incentivizes is um, you know, making sure that you show up and, and are actively engaged in all of the voting processes because there is an additional reward there. I think those illustrate creative uses of the limited Web3 token wallet ecosystem that we have today, but they would all be greatly complemented by off-chain data um, to, you know, to even further um, add you know, local complexity to or useful complexity rather to how much, you know, how much your your vote is worth based on your subject matter expertise or your past contributions more than just hanging on to the tokens. Though I think that that's a really wonderful step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And another example that just came to mind as you were saying that is uh, Mirror just started doing like these airdrop tokens to the most active members of the Mirror community. And that's determined by an algorithm that takes into consideration, you know, how many uh, posts you have on Mirror, how active you are with the weekly voting and the right race, like all of these different factors. And I think that's a really good way, even though that doesn't really speak to I mean, it does speak to voting because you can vote people in with your right tokens. Uh, But I think that's a really good way of more like equitable distribution of voting rights within a community. Totally, because then, you know, in that capacity, those tokens sound like they're um, they're proofs of work as much as they are governance tools. I worry about communities like Mirror sometimes tending toward the Instagram dystopia of like digital sharecropping content um, and and needing to perform for social favor as the means to achieving intellectual opportunity of communication. That said, I will say that Mirror is really awesome. I love all the content there. And I think that, um, that that dystopia is far off from where we are today. I think they've heard that feedback loud and clear as well. And I think that's one of the reasons for this new airdrop token thing is so that you don't have to put yourself through this right race, which, you know, some people might see as a popularity contest, uh, Instagram 2.0 situation. And here you can get airdrop tokens if you're a valuable member in the community. And now it's like if you get airdrop these tokens, all you need is to, to get somebody else onto the platform is one right token. And you could give it to somebody who is like, a no-name person, but you know this person is super smart, has a lot of good things to say, but just would never like win this popularity contest that is the right race. And so you can just give them this token. They can get on the platform, 
for, you know, skipping through all of those steps and still be able to be part of the community. So I, I think that's uh, that was sort of their response to this uh, criticism that it's become somewhat of a popularity contest. Totally highlights the importance of the human trust layer here, too. How, you know, we don't have the data vessels to capture all of the qualifiers that would lead to the right outcome. And so sometimes it's just more useful to circumvent and to allow um, human beings to be the transport layer for their own data and their own reputation. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. So this last segment, uh, I call this explain your tweet. This is where I dig through your Twitter and I pull out some interesting or cryptic tweets. Your Twitter is a, is a gold mine, I have to say. You don't tweet super often, but there is so much good stuff there. I mean, we could we could have spent all podcasts on these tweets. But for the sake of time, I've just got I pulled two or three out here. The first one is from August 22nd, 2021, you said, should we start a Web3 pack, super pack, and run it as a DAO? I bet we could buy a lot of political influence. <laughs> this is obviously a little tongue-in-cheek, but I found it to be an interesting tweet, and uh, especially in light of, I mean, I, I'm guessing you were maybe responding to like the new bill that was passed and all the drama around that. Was that, is that accurate? Diana, I think you are the only person who reads my tweets. So thank you. <laughs> But um, that that note was partly in response to the tremendous organization and movement I saw in the Web3 community to respond to the recent infrastructure bill. But beyond that, it also occurred to me recently that um, the decentralized community does a great job of being decentralized in that we do not have a unified voice and the tribal chain aligned um, you know, battles between our respective Web3 fiefdoms do us no favors when it comes to communicating with the regulatory, you know, environment powers that be. It is weird to me that there isn't a crypto pack because there is an implied crypto voting block. Um, we all care deeply about many of the same issues and the rash decisions, you know, occasionally proposed by especially the U.S. government um, should have some mechanism to receive feedback and guidance from the industry that they purport to regulate. In my free time, I um, have contributed to writing progressive legislation for the state of New Jersey. I spend a lot of time educating folks on um, the basics of Web3 from people who work at the Fed to high school students. And so I'm, I was reflecting on the fact that um, this is a, a needed force and an organized party. But it also occurred to me that DAOs are such a familiar structure. Um, it would be a really beautiful pairing to have a DAO devoted to political action and education. Uh, I think we could also show many a government how it's done if we tried really hard to, to illustrate new forms of, um, of governance. If you end up forming this DAO, let me know. I'm so in. I think there's such a big need for this, as has been made extremely clear in the last couple of weeks with all of this infrastructure bill talk. We've all seen that there's just the big the big problem is that there's a lack of education in our decision makers in our country. And uh, I think your proposed solution, whether you're being funny or serious, is actually a good solution to that problem. So I am totally there. I'll, I'll work on this with you. I love that tweet. Well, <laughs> if anybody wants to form a crypto pack DAO, get into my DMs and Diana, you and I and our new friends will tackle it together. 
Yes, yes, let's do it. I love it. All right, this next tweet I've got is from August 18th, 2021. You said, technical quality varies in canvases for art, leather for handbags, wood for furniture. Technical quality also varies in NFTs. All NFTs are not created equally. Metadata, smart contracts, choice of chain, and identity data can separate a flimsy NFT from a technically robust one. Okay, so I think this is really important. Um, I actually just tweeted something about like how NFT, most NFT artwork is not actually on chain like people think it is, and it can disappear very, very quickly. And you just wrote about like even more elements um, to that. So can you dissect that for people listening? Certainly. So in the same way that creating physical art offers an artist the opportunity to make choices about their expression. So for example, a block of wood turned into a sculpture offers many opportunities to cut and to finish it and to um, to put it on a pedestal, to present it, what light to use. Um, so similarly, when we create an NFT, there are a lot of choices that we can make about how to express that crypto asset. Um, the underlying blockchain upon which the NFT is built offers us differing capabilities. For example, an NFT minted on the NEAR protocol has the ability to retain revenue splits um, regardless of which application it's resold on. Whereas on the Ethereum blockchain, those revenue splits are largely going to be application specific. So for example, limited to OpenSea only, but if sold in a private sale, aren't going to carry over. Additionally, uh, as you know, as mentioned, there are ways that you can store the metadata of the NFT itself that differ. So, um, you know, many many people, as you note, find it frustrating and confusing when they learn that the NFT's digital container is the only bit that's unique and stored on chain by default, um, and that the URI contained therein can point to a centralized server, can point to decentralized, ser- you know, servers, can point kind of anywhere. Um, and so depending on the goal of your NFT, uh, the, the type of storage that you use for its contents um, can be more or less useful. So for example, um, if I store the, the image, the JPEG of an NFT that I want to give you on my own servers, and it starts off as a beautiful, a beautiful photo. Um, let's say it's uh, it was a Justin Aversano um, image, uh, a beautiful photo that that you know noted NFT photographer Justin Aversano is minted. So I send it to you. But let's say I'm storing that image on a centralized server that I own and control. I can send you this beautiful photo NFT, and then after it gets into your wallet, I can say, yeah, Diana doesn't really deserve a Justin photo. I'm gonna swap that out for a picture of. I don't know, Clorox wipes, because that's something that we've all thought about for the last year. And so now you're stuck with this, you know, like cleaning product image when you thought you were getting a piece of art. Um, And so having your NFT metadata stored in a manner that relies on another party that's not trustworthy puts it in danger. You don't know what's going to happen to that. Like it could turn into a jar of Clorox wipes. <laughs> and so, um, so additionally, the way that that metadata is stored and the form of it also gives you the ability to add value or, or sort of detract context from an NFT. So as we know, NFTs can only contain a very small amount of data. Um, and so usually that's a link to data stored elsewhere. However, NFTs can also be the subject of a verifiable credential. So you could write a credential stating that, let's say, an NFT was exhibited in the Louvre, signed the Louvre Museum. And suddenly that NFT can carry around with it a proof of exhibition. Right now, if you and I, you or I were to call up Christie's and try to buy a Basquiat, 
that Basquiat would come with an exhibition history. That's pretty standard. Provenance history, condition report, exhibition history. But for NFTs, we don't even have the data taxonomy to keep track of the exhibition history of these works that can be shown not only in physical space on a screen, they can be worn, they can be uh, displayed in VR, they can just be displayed in AR, um, they can be part of, uh, of a composite multimedia expression. Um, and so just using the data primitives that we have, you know, already, we can create a much more rich um, uh, set of, of metadata for an NFT. Um, and so you can imagine that starting to really dig into all of these capabilities um, allows for artists and creators to make a great variance of the types of NFTs and the complexity of NFTs that exist. One other thing I'll call out is um, Chainlink and 3Box uh, recently had, or Ceramic, their storage protocol, um, recently had a really awesome collaboration where um, Chainlink's Oracle can help NFTs sort of point to different metadata depending on events. So imagine you could have an NFT that evolves visually over time. Similar to um, BT, the artist did an NFT a while ago that had different content for every um, you know, moment of a 24-hour period of time. Uh, but imagine you could have an NFT that changes after every time you trade it or that grows up and evolves. Um, similar to like Maroon 5 sold NFTs that will visually change based on the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So having more um, integrated tooling around NFTs really broadens the scope of quality and, and capabilities that we can experience with these assets. Super cool. That is super cool. Yeah, we've got a long ways to go in NFTs too. I know it seems like we're, you know, we've come a long way in NFTs and we have, like it's completely exploded this year, um, but there's still a very long ways to go. And it's, it is like surprising to me sometimes that, you know, I, I think a lot of people, even people who are aware that the NFTs they're buying could just you know, be replaced by a Clorox wipe at any moment. It's like they they don't really care. Like we're we've all sort of just bought into it, you know. And I mean, myself included. Like I have NFTs that I know could disappear, and um, I'm still doing it. So that's interesting to me. Um, and we'll just have to see how how that develops. I think, as with all things, introducing off-chain data is going to give us more more options. Um, and so, as soon as we see the NFT market embracing the ability to interact with both on-chain and off-chain um, ecosystems, then you know that that's going to be for me a big signal that the metaverse has arrived. For sure. And then speaking of the metaverse, I've got one more tweet for you. This is from August 1st, 2021. You said to build the metaverse, we need to think in 3D, assume a digital overlay of every physical space plus portals into persistent digital environments, all their own. These environments will respond based on your identity and preferences. Tell us more about this. So sometimes when I'll talk about the metaverse with my friends that aren't super into Web3, they'll say, well, where is it? The comparison that I like to pull out, sorry if you don't watch Netflix, is um, in Stranger Things, uh, the concept of the upside down or having a whole world, a per whole persistent environment that is predicated on the physical world that we enjoy, but has different traits and capabilities. I think of the metaverse as the persistent digital environment that we can create um, through you know, Web3, through connected technologies that animates the environment around us 
both in a very tangible sense, opening doors, and in an experiential sense, overlaying visuals and, and giving us you know, additional context and choices. When we consider how to build metaverse experiences, we first have to choose, um, are we going to build an experience that plays off the, the physical environment that we're in right now? Or do we want to create a net new digital environment where we can build the container for, for narrative from the ground up and we can make the rules of that ecosystem whatever we want? You know, we can make gravity work differently. We can make um, sound work differently. The limitation of um, seeing metaverses as just the latter, just a persistent digital space, um, really skips over the transition period that I think we're in the middle of right now, where we can use digital experiences to augment or enhance our physical world, or we can use them to completely escape our physical world. But it's that bridge between um, that sort of augmented reality phase that, um, that is going to carry us from looking on a screen to being inside of a screen um, in a in a pleasant and enjoyable way. When I look at a lot of uh, a lot of sort of metaverse design discussions, it kind of skips over this transitory period between where we are now and where you know everyone's like sitting in a game chair with a thing strapped on their face. Yeah, I think when people think about like really new things, they like to think and like binary, like it's either metaverse or it's the real world. But I think like you said, it's the metaverse is going to augment or build on top of the real world. Uh, and it's not going to replace the real world. A lot of people ask me this because I love like going like doing things outdoors, like going hiking, getting, you know, out outdoors. And I like to promote that too. like get off Twitter, everybody like go spend some time outdoors this weekend. Um, people are like, why? Why do you like? Why are you such a proponent of the metaverse? You know, when you like being outdoors so much? And I'm like, I, I don't see that being contradictory at all. Um, I think metaverse is just an added tool that'll give us like more functionalities. Like for instance, instead of looking at you on a screen doing this podcast, we could have VR goggles on, we could have decided on a predetermined location, like, hey, do you want to go record this on the beach today? Show up on a beach, we'll be recording this on the beach, you know, as we perceive uh, what is happening. And I think that's a much more enjoyable experience than, you know, staring at each other on a Zoom screen all day and getting Zoom fatigue as uh, everybody can relate to after the last year. Most definitely. I think the metaverse is really about the process of unleashing the screen. Um, you know, in the 12th century, people invented picture frames. And we haven't really evolved far from consuming our primary media through that rectangle. And so being able to move the capabilities and freedom and ability to you know, dive into any given experience that we enjoy in our little rectangles today, being able to move that onto any surface and um, any space, whether it's tangible or not, um, I think will will you know open up open up the both the realm of possibility for creation, but also for experience. Um, and we can you know live like we have a, a, a personal Jarvis with us everywhere, uh, not just in the Tony Stark movies. <laughs> I love that. Okay, well, thank you so much, Evan, for taking the time to come on today. Uh, before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, slide into your DMs about that super pack, that Web3 pack, and also where people can go to learn more about Certo. 
Thank you so much, Diana, for having me. This was so much fun. Um, I encourage anyone who's interested in decentralized identity and Web3 to slide into my DMs on Twitter at Proven Authority. And you can learn more about our work with Certo at Certo.id. Perfect. Thanks again so much, Evan. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.